good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow and I'm one of the elders here at Mercy Hill Church. What you are about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of the word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. Our primary text this morning is focusing in on verse 17 and 18. And again, as I mentioned, it's somewhat of making your way to the mountaintop so that we can understand all the commandments that have been given in regard to the the weaker or the stronger brother. And so before we do that, I need to ask the question, as we look at verse 17, it simply says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. And the very first thing that we need to understand is what is meant by the kingdom of God. What is Paul ultimately getting at as he is considering this? Because if we miss this, then we're gonna miss the whole commandment and not understand really the whole argument of Romans chapter 14. What is the kingdom of God? Just to kind of give you one scriptural reference that mentions the kingdom, John chapter three, verses three, through six. I imagine most of us are familiar with this. This is Jesus's conversation with Nicodemus. He says this in verse three, Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see that is behold the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. What do we mean when we say the kingdom of God? When we are speaking of the kingdom of God, we are ultimately thinking about and meditating upon the kingdom in which believers are brought when they are born again. John Murray says it this way, the kingdom of God is the realm to which believers belong. This is our household, for lack of better terms. When you think of your residence as one who has been brought into the family of God, we belong to the kingdom. We have been ransomed out of this kingdom of darkness. We've been ransomed out from the world, from slavery to sin and the law, and we have been brought into the precious and beloved kingdom of our God. What a unique privilege that we have to say, I belong to the kingdom of God. This is where we reside. This is our address. This is where God ransoms us into. He does not ransom us and and, and deliver us from slavery to sin, to leave us in somewhat of an enigma. He brings us into a beautiful household called the kingdom of God. This is where we reside, saint. This is our primary identity. We belong to the kingdom. And the reason that he introduces this statement in verse 17 by saying, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of, is because he wants to articulate how it is that you have been brought into the kingdom of God, how you participate in it, and ultimately, what is the conduct of this kingdom? But the very first thing that he does as he introduces this concept of the kingdom of God is he addresses what it is not a matter of, what it is not concerning, which is what we have been meditating on over the past couple of weeks of walking through Romans. 14. What does Paul mean when he says the kingdom of God isn't a matter of eating and drinking? Paul is saying that dietary participation or restraint plays no part in your entrance to the kingdom of God. Meaning that if you choose to eat meat or if you choose to eat only vegetables, if you drink, if you do not drink, the list goes on. These play no role in your participation in the kingdom of God. 
Now, the reason this is so important is because as you're considering the commandments of Romans 14, you can almost assume that there would be interjections of saying, ah, but if I reject these things, does that mean that I'm refusing participation? Hear me, if you believe that your participation in the kingdom of God is based upon what you eat or drink or some ceremonial observation, then you are having a Galatians problem. And you are ultimately arguing that the things that you do add to or place you in the kingdom of God. This is a false gospel altogether. There is nothing that we do to cause our entrance into the kingdom of God. There is nothing that we do that would, that would encourage God to accept us. And I assure you, it's not based upon what you put in your belly. The reality is that we enter into the kingdom of God, not because of dietary restrictions, not because observation of ceremonial days and whatnot. We enter in based upon the work of Christ and the work of Christ alone, as we will see here in a moment. So Paul comes in and tells us, your entrance into the kingdom of God has nothing to do with what you eat or drink or how you participate in various forms of liberty. Secondly, Paul is saying that diet plays no part in your continued participation in God's kingdom. If I could break this down for you for just a moment. The stronger brother, when he says, I'm not going to eat because I have no desire to destroy my weaker brother, he is not then refusing to participate in the kingdom of God. He is not forfeiting his kingdom citizenship when he says, I'm not gonna eat, I'm not gonna participate, I'm gonna restrain myself and not walk in my liberties for the good of my brother. That is not a refusal of participation or a forfeit of participation. I would actually argue it is evidence of participation. The weaker brother then also doesn't reveal his lack of participation in the kingdom when he refrains. The weaker brother who, do, who does not eat meat, as this text says, or does not drink, as it says later on in this text, is not indicating that he is not a part of the kingdom of God. Instead, he is abiding by the lordship of Christ over his conscience, and he is simply indicating that there is still some inward constraint, perhaps based upon tradition, perhaps based upon previous sins. It matters not really where it anchors itself. The reality is that he is simply aiming to abide by and obey Christ's lordship in his life. It is not a statement of his participation or lack thereof in the kingdom. This is why he lays this out. But, but the question is like, why is he so dogmatic? Why give a whole chapter? I mean, sincerely, I mean, you're, you're dealing with a very large portion of the book of Romans as he's dealing with opinions. And I want to give you those reasons and perhaps restating some. But the very first reason that Paul makes this commandment, he lays out the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, is because the church is being swept up in quarrels about opinions. Now, I know we know nothing of that. But imagine this. When Paul indicates that, that the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, what's he doing with this concept of opinions? Is he not debasing it? Is he not showing you how low it is, calling it an opinion, calling it essentially something that falls into the liberty of conscience? The reality is that there are quarrels breaking out inside of the body of Christ in Rome over who's eating and who's drinking and what they are partaking of. They are getting into heated fights of this. And I think if you go further in the text, you kind of understand that because there's a stronger and a weaker brother and they are impugning each other's character based upon what they're eating and drinking. The stronger brother's looking at the weaker brother and saying, I, this guy's, he won't walk in his liberty. And as he won't walk in his liberty, maybe, maybe it, because he won't walk in his liberty that he really doesn't have that liberty. Perhaps it is that he hasn't been set free. Perhaps he hasn't been brought into the kingdom of God. And so what does he do? He impugns his character. He despises him, even to the point where the apostle Paul has to command the church in Rome to welcome the weaker brother. Why would he command them to welcome the weaker brother? I think it's quite clear because 
there would have been occurrences where they would have rejected the weaker brother who was not walking in his liberty. Or perhaps it is that the weaker brother is looking at the stronger who's participating. He's eating meat. Perhaps he even has eaten meat sacrificed to an idol. Or perhaps it is that he ate pork at some point or another. And that what you see there is an impugning of his character, a judgment cast on that individual over food sacrificed to idols or over clean things that have been made clean by Christ and acts. And he's looking at them and saying, oh, they must not be participants in the kingdom of God because they're eating food sacrificed to idols or they must not be participants in the kingdom of God because they're eating pork or something else that was unclean previously. They're impugning each other's characters. They're assaulting one another over something that I would have to, I would have to articulate by my understanding of Romans 14, trivial matters. They're assaulting one another. They're impugning one another's characters. And then I think finally, if we follow the, the flow of Romans 14, the Another point is because Paul wanted to remind them that on the last day, questions about food and drink will not be paramount. Listen to what Matthew Henry says concerning this. So as to other things, it is neither circumcision nor uncircumcision. It is not being of this party in persuasion, of this or the other opinion in minor things that will recommend us to God. It will not be asked at the great day who ate flesh and who ate herbs, who kept holy days and who did not. Nor will it be asked who was conformist and who was nonconformist, but it will be asked who feared God and worked righteousness and who did not. Nothing more destructive, listen to this phrase, nothing more destructive to true Christianity than placing it in modes and forms and circumstantials which eat out the essentials. When we exalt this concept of liberty, when we exalt this concept of opinions, ultimately what we are doing, and I am convinced this is the case, we are eating out the essential doctrines of the Christian faith for secondary and tertiary doctrines. And in the midst of it, we impugn our brothers, accusing them of perhaps not belonging to the kingdom of God at all or something of that nature. And then lastly, not only does he want to communicate that on the last day, there's going to be a paramount question asked, which is ultimately anchored in, do you know the Lord? Or better yet, does he know you? Finally, because he intends to show them, and this is where we want to land today. He intends to show them how far they are from kingdom matters. Imagine walking through all of Romans and you get to the the, the, the wondrous realities of the gospel, you have been drinking in the propitiation of Christ, his satisfactory death on the cross to satisfy God's wrath. You've been considering reconciliation that's taken place through his finished work. You've been reminded of redemption, that he is the firstborn among many brothers. All of these truths being laid out in Romans and you get to the end of it in the midst of all of this reality, even seeing that you are now the new people of God, that you are called by his name, that you are been given mercy, that all of these beautiful truths are washed over you and you say, yeah, but that guy over there is eating something he shouldn't. And perhaps it is that we look at this and we consider it folly. And I think that's appropriate that we consider it folly. But, but saints, I think it is reasonable to say that we fall into this trap. And when we fall into this trap, I'm convinced it is because we do not really understand or love and cherish that which is really a matter of the kingdom of God. Listen to what Murray says about this. And I think so helpfully. When questions of food and drink become our chief concern, then it is apparent how far removed from the interest of God's kingdom our thinking and conduct have strayed. Coming to the conclusion of this beautiful book, this introduction is there, pointed, I imagine, strong and resolved in its reading and saying, we're talking about this, 
This is what we're concerning ourselves with on the other side of justification by faith alone, on the other side of righteousness being given to you, not by works of the law, but based upon the free gift of Christ. And we're having conversations about what's clean and what's unclean, about who really can be a participant in the kingdom of God. And I think one of the reasons that we trivialize this to some degree is because we don't really struggle. I imagine none of you have struggled with looking at a brother and judging them based upon what he's eating or drinking. This perhaps has difficulty connecting for us. But just to kind of lay out the danger in modern terms and give some illustration, the danger is this. When we exalt opinions and areas where Christ has given liberty to dogmatics, The church loses, I want you to hear that, loses her primary identity and then must build itself on that opinion or liberty. It has to forsake. I'm so glad we've been singing the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ our Lord. The reality is that when we exalt opinion and we exalt liberty, essentially what we are doing, whether we want to admit it or not, and perhaps it is a gradual slide, ultimately what you are doing is removing the firm foundation of Jesus Christ and him crucified and you are introducing a new category. And that new category will eventually become Lord of the church. It will eventually reign. It will rule. I mean, let's just play this out for a minute. Let's play it out in the context of this local, of, of this local church and in, in the midst of this passage. The very first thing that you could imagine taking place, if Paul would not have addressed this immediately, that you could see some type of division, some type of schism occurring in the church of Rome. Perhaps it is that there would have been a vegan church. By the way, I did a Google search. This is real. The website is PETA's Lambs. I kid you not where you can find a church that's devoted to veganism. You can find a vegan affirming pastor. Most of them are women. So anyway, <laughs> but, but what's the primary marker of that church, saints? Is it Christ and him crucified? No, the identity, the advertisement as it were is, hey, we're a vegan church. Come participate in our commonality. The commonality is not Christ and him crucified. The commonality is we all refuse to meet, eat meat. God forbid. And it matters not whether you find yourself in regard to the vegan church or the carnivore church. It does not matter. Ultimately, there is something else that has become the primary foundation of the church. If they divorce, if they separate over something like food sacrifice to idols or eating of meat or not eating of meat, there has become a new primary unifier of that church. And the primary unifier is not Christ and him crucified. It's not righteousness. It's not peace. It's not joy in the Holy Spirit. It's what you put in your body. Or let's go forward, shall we? Perhaps something a little bit more modern. I can drive through this particular county and I can find on the corner a church that is called the Gamer Church. Their primary unification is that they all play video games. God forbid. That's the mark. The mark is that we all have a hobby in common. These are not points of unification. These are ultimately points of division. Do not buy that as they go forth saying that we are the gamer church or perhaps putting into a different category, a biker church, one that shares unique commonalities. They say, ah, but we have this particular hobby in common. Therefore, we will have a better and more unique fellowship. No, you won't. You'll have a disgruntled, fallen, frail fellowship because it's based on something that will burn. It's absolute folly to go to this. And let's go even further. Perhaps let's jump into the 80s and 90s. Perhaps it is that we can get into debates about traditional services where there's hymns and organs and pianos and the contemporary service. God forbid someone strum a guitar. And yet there is all types of these divisions. There, this is the beginning of separate services inside of the congregation so that we can satisfy particular people's preferences without ultimately dividing. Hear me, it is a division. Well, I go to the traditional service. 
Well, I go to the contemporary. Well, we both are founded upon the rock of Christ. And if we're both founded upon the rock of Christ, this should be our primary unity. Perhaps it is that I can lay my preferences aside. Perhaps it is though I do love a hymn that I'm okay with singing one written after the year 2000. Or let's go further. Perhaps let's get a little nearer to ourselves, shall we? Or perhaps it is that we have churches that are built upon, ah, well, we believe in sending our children to public school. Or perhaps it is not just public school. Perhaps it is there's just some verdict given in regard to the church on how someone should educate their children. It matters not, saint, whether you send your children to public school or to private school. That is not a kingdom matter. A kingdom matter is that it's based upon righteousness and peace and joy. Its foundation is Christ and Him crucified. There is certainly divisions among us in regard to these particular issues, but they are never reasons to divide. They are never reasons for us to separate because we have one firm foundation. And as we have one firm foundation, we will not ever divide over secondary or tertiary issues. We will stand united on the rock of Jesus Christ. And perhaps one that I saw, grievously saw in the last few years, is that there is both a church for the vaccinated and for the unvaccinated. These are not grounds for unity. These are grounds for division. Saints, we have one firm foundation. And I care not how strong your opinions are. If your opinions are causing you to divide with brothers who stand upon the same rock of Jesus Christ, they are idolatrous opinions. To sum this up, I said it this way as I was working through this. None of these mark us as a kingdom people. None of these will eternally bind us. And yet, and yet, these are often the instruments used to temporarily divide us. None of these things that I just listed will bind you eternally. None of these things really do ensure your participation in the kingdom of God. I assure you that when you're gathered around the throne of grace in eternity, none of you will be having conversations about wishing that it was a hymn instead of a more contemporary paced song. No. Saints, we have one firm foundation. And not only do we have one firm foundation, he has not only eliminated the things that we should not be basing our foundations upon, he has given us appropriately and reasonably so what the kingdom is actually a matter of. And saints, hear me, you lay hold of this, the rest of the commandments that we find in Romans 14, the rest of the commandments that we find at the beginning of Romans 15 and all that we have dealt with will come quite naturally to you. It is very true in the Christian faith that there is a truth that is overarching and obedience flows from that truth. So often we try to grab the obedience without understanding the truth. Hear me, saints, it will not last long. You need to understand the truth so that you can obey appropriately. So what is the kingdom a matter of? Listen to verse 17 again. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but what a wonderful, glorious statement of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Can I get an amen? Praise God. This is what the kingdom is a matter of. Righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So let's look at what that means. The kingdom of God is a matter of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So let's understand what truly is our anchor point in our participation and enjoyment of the kingdom of God together. First, the kingdom of God is a matter of righteousness. And I wanna break these up in three ways. First, substantially, meaning the substance of that kingdom. Secondly, how it is that we came to be participants. And third, the conduct that flows from both of those things. So first, the kingdom of God is flooded, flooded with righteousness. 2 Peter 3.13 says this, but according to his promise, we are awaiting the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. That the kingdom itself 
is a place that, you, I mean, it's almost strange language to have this word being, the, being righteousness, having a dwelling place. But the reality is the kingdom of God is marked by righteousness. There is not a square foot of the kingdom of God that is not marked by this. It's, it's, it is the substance of that place. It is a righteous and holy dwelling. And certainly there are paramount reasons for that being the case. The primary is it's the kingdom of God who is the eternally righteous one. He is the one who reigns in that place. He is the perfect governor of that place. He is the one who fills it with all of its beautiful substance, namely himself. It is only appropriate that we say that the kingdom of God is a matter of righteousness because it is substantially a place flooded with righteousness. And then that leads us to believe or leads us to a question that I think is most appropriate. How is it that we and unrighteous people can go into this place where righteousness dwells and not be an oddity? The reason that we can go into this kingdom that is flooded with righteousness, that's mark is righteousness, is because a righteousness has been decreed to us. It has been lavished on us. It has been judicially given to us. And this is the whole crux of the book of Romans. We must not forget the beginning as we make our way to the end. Romans 1, 16 through 17. This is the, the thesis, as it were, of the book of Romans. He says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The foundation point of the book of Romans is that there is a righteousness of God that is based upon faith. And from that point forward, he elaborates on on how we come to possess it, enjoy it, and ultimately where it lands us in the kingdom of righteousness. We participate in a righteous kingdom based upon the righteousness of God lavished on us. Listen to what Romans 3 says. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift of the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. How is it that you can participate in this blessed kingdom of righteousness? Because Christ has granted you a perfect righteousness. Not because you ate or drank appropriately, not because you observed particular days, not because you did what your particular tradition encouraged you to do. The reason that you will participate in this perfect kingdom of God is because Christ in his infinite grace has clothed you with righteousness and made you fit for his table. The reality is that as we make our way to the dining table of God, it is quite apparent and true that we would be oddities. We should be oddities, should we not? Are we not wicked as we walk into that place that is called the kingdom of righteousness? How is it that I, an alien, a stranger, a wicked man, can walk into that place, sit down at the table, and not be asked, why are you here? The reason is because I am, saints, you are, if you be in the Lord Jesus Christ, are clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You look like family. And then Romans 8, 3 through 4. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. In order, I want you to hear this. Don't, don't steal from this verse. In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. Like play this out for me for a moment. What does this text actually say? 
that the righteous requirements of the law would be fulfilled in us. It does go forward and say, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. But there's like, this means that as we gather at that table, as we participate in the kingdom of God where righteousness dwells, where we have been granted a wonderful participation through the finished work of Jesus Christ and the finished work of Christ alone, that the righteous requirements of the law are fulfilled in us. It is an incredible reality that it's not just a cloak. Like we view it, and I think it's reasonable to say so, that we view it as a cloak, but, but, but God views it judicially. God sees it as reality. That, that, that this double imputation that we speak of, the forgiveness of sins that we rejoice in and the imputation of righteousness, I think sometimes we think that it doesn't fit appropriately on us and perhaps it feels as though it's a little mismatched that this righteous cloak that's over me still has this inner man of sin and wickedness and trespass underneath. But brothers and sisters, in that place, I assure you that cloak fits perfectly. And not only does it fit perfectly, it means that when God looks at us, he sees us as if the righteous requirements of the law are, might be fulfilled in us, that they are fulfilled in us. Again, this is not me saying that we have done it. No, it's saying that Christ has done it so perfectly and so completely that the Father looks at us as if we had done it. It is an astonishing reality. And so we come participating in the perfect kingdom of righteousness. And then finally, this does not remove our conduct. And hear me, if you have taken my concept of opinion as we've walked through this to mean that I can sin, you've misunderstood the whole crux of this matter. Because there are very clear categories. That's the reason we've spoken of opinions as things which are neither positively commanded nor negatively commanded, meaning that if I can go to the scriptures and show you this is clear trespass, it's not a matter of opinion, I understand this requires some nuance, then, then, then we've misunderstood because there is a conduct of that place. Listen to what Romans six fifteen through 18 says, kind of continuing our trek. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Saints, the reality is that as we're brought into that kingdom where righteousness dwells, as we're clothed with the righteousness of Christ, as we are being conformed to his image, it is only right and reasonable that our conduct begins to align with that. Our obedience does flow from the reality that we have been brought into right fellowship with Christ. It's reasonable to say that as we are participants in the kingdom of righteousness, that we ourselves are being molded into the image of Christ and that we are growing in obedience each and every day. We make it our aim to offer ourselves as slaves of righteousness to Christ, to be obedient to him. And if I were to summarize it, I'd say it this way. The church, the kingdom of God is marked by a substantial righteousness. That is to say, it is a righteous kingdom. It is participated in by the unmerited gift of Christ's righteousness and marked marked by a righteousness of conduct as they delight in Christ and his gifts. This is a kingdom matter. Righteousness is a kingdom matter. It is substantially righteous. You are a participant based upon righteousness that was granted to you from Christ and the conduct of our lives here below as we make our way to glory should be ever increasingly a righteous conduct. But not only is righteousness a matter of the kingdom, peace is as well. Substantially then, same basic concept, the kingdom of God is a kingdom of peace in the way that I've said it is all peace. Because we live in these little bouts of warfare here, these little 
tumults, these little pieces of strife that take place. But Isaiah 11 says it this way, six through nine. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of a cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand in the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. There is no strife in that kingdom. How we should long for that. As we experience it here, certainly in the global sphere, but I think we can all perhaps lay hold of strife that takes place between us and our brothers on a regular basis. Oh, how we should long for this substantial kingdom of peace where there will be no strife, where there will be no division or schism. Instead, it will be peace and all peace. Now, the question is, how is it that we become partakers in this provided peace? I want to note Romans 3.17 for you really quickly. It says this, the way of peace they have not known. That this is our natural disposition, and hear me, this is our natural disposition, and I'm fully aware that my inner man still has some of this left, and I would plead with you to be aware of that as well that there is still in us a desire, a lack of knowledge of the way of peace, that there's still the remnants of sin that might rear its ugly head. But here's the beauty. The way of peace we have not known, but this is Romans 3, 17. And as we progress a bit further into the book of Romans, Romans 5, 1 says this, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We knew not the way of peace, but he did. And as he did, he by his grace and kindness, pursued peace with us through the finished work of Christ. Listen to what it says again, 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, I want you to notice that simple phrase, since, because we have been justified by faith, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You understand that this means you once did not have peace with God? that you were once his enemy, if we could even jump to passages like Ephesians 2, that you were dead in your trespasses and sins, that you were a child of wrath, that you were at enmity with God in the true sense of the word. And the reality is that not only were we at enmity with God, the way of peace we did not know in any capacity, first and foremost, dealing with our relationship with God. And then by his infinite grace, he justifies us to the finished work of Christ and says, peace. And he establishes that peace, not temporarily. It's not a ceasefire. It is a friendly embracing of one another. This is what it means when God provides perfect peace. He has provided for us a resting place. He has provided us a kingdom of peace in which we can dwell. John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus says this, I have said these things to you that in me, you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Christ has provided peace first and foremost in the gospel of grace, but secondarily, Christ himself, as we rest in him and delight in him, has provided for us a peace that endures tribulation. Saints, we need to be marked by a lasting peace here below. We live in a kingdom that, it, that in which dwells perfect peace. It makes perfect sense for us to have true rest here below. That we have rested in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we find peace in him in the midst of tribulation. But then finally, as we are partakers of that kingdom, we are to be marked by peacemaking. Matthew 5, 9 says this, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. How is it that we who have been granted and given peace with God by the finished work of Christ are so quick to make war? 
But first and foremost, in our particular text, so quick to make war against our brothers. God forbid in the midst of the peace that he's provided, there is a ceasefire between me and the God who has absolute right to condemn me in my sin, to leave me be, to cast me into the fires of hell. And in his infinite grace, he has sought after me, brought me out of that wretched place of torment and suffering and anguish, provided peace for, for me in the unique way of enjoying fellowship with him. And I'm like, I, I think I'm gonna go ahead and divide from you because I can't really labor for peace here. God forbid. As we understand and meditate upon the gospel, how can we not be peacemakers? We have tasted it and seen the goodness of it flowing from Christ. How can we not labor for it here below? James 3.14 says this, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And so we have that the true kingdom matters. Our righteousness and peace in the last is so crucial to our understanding. And saints, you know, there are a few things that I have difficulty conveying. I mean, I just the joy in the Holy Spirit is a mark of a kingdom people. What does the text say in verse 17? For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Well, how can we have joy in the Holy Spirit, saints? Listen to what Psalm 16 says, because it is. I want you to understand that as we are making our way to that blessed kingdom of God where the new heavens and the new earth, earth are ushered in, and even to this very moment, Psalm 16, 11 says this, you make known to me the paths of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So to, to maybe play the trajectory out here a moment. Christ has provided for us perfect righteousness so that we might dwell in a perfectly righteous kingdom. He has provided us peace so that we might have peace as we dwell eternally in that peaceful kingdom. What is the mark of those who have been made righteous through the finished work of Christ, those who have access to the throne of grace and have been granted peace with God, eternal peace with God? How can it be anything but joy? In your presence, there is fullness of joy. Saying, if you have struggles with being marked by joy, I would simply ask, when was the last time you went to the throne of grace? When was the last time you sat there based upon a provided righteousness and a provided peace and you sat there with the intention of enjoying Christ, of delighting in him, of rejoicing in him? I mean, this simple statement, in your presence there is fullness of joy. I find joy in the most menial and, forgive me, stupid things here below. And I am found often with the reality that they will not last. Saints, the kingdom of God, a matter, a matter of the kingdom of God is an endless, boundless joy that flows from knowing Jesus Christ. And I'm somewhat staggered by this because participation in the kingdom is... I'm always thinking about ways that I should be finding my identity there. But one of the primary identities is rejoicing in the identity that has been provided for us. That righteousness and peace mark us. What great joy this would give me. That I, even though I am a wretch, have been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Even though I should be an enemy, I have been made a friend. Not just a friend, but a son or a daughter of the king of glory. That he invites me to dine at his table. How can I be in the presence of the king with no joy? How can I not be there thrilled, overcome with joy and rejoicing in that place? Being overcome by the beauty of Christ. Saints, it is a marker. It is a matter of the kingdom of God that you enjoy him. 
Listen to what 1 Peter 1, 8 through 9 says. This is in the midst, by the way, of great, great tribulation. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. I want this joy. This is a matter of the kingdom that I would experience and enjoy this, this inexpressible joy, this inexpressible rejoicing that's filled with a unique glory. Saints, this should be our aim. This is what we should be pursuing is righteousness and peace and ultimately this wondrous joy that keeps us, that shows us the beauty of the kingdom of God, that it's the only reasonable response to all that is substantially in the kingdom. This is the pursuit. This is the aim, which really leads us to this last section here, which is really a how then are we to live section in light of this. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Listen to what he says here. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So what do we need to understand from this? In the midst of the kingdom of God, not being a matter of eating or drinking, but being a matter of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, how then are we to live? He goes on and he says, whoever thus serves Christ. Well, what does it mean to thus serve Christ? What's the thus making reference to? It means that we serve Christ with the understanding that matters of liberty and opinion are not the matters of the kingdom of God. They are not the matters of the kingdom of God. They are placed over and against one another. This means that in light of that reality, I'm going to abide by what Christ has said is a matter of the kingdom of God and what Christ has said is not a matter of a kingdom of God, which means that I will obey him in all the other categories that he has laid out. That means that I will not judge my brother in matters of liberty. We live with charity towards one another because righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit are the primary matters of which we are concerned. It means that we do not despise our brothers in matters of liberty. We sacrifice our liberty for their good because food sacrificed to idols, because eating and drinking are not a matter of your participation or enjoyment of the kingdom of God. And in so doing, as you abide by the commands that Christ has given here, in so doing, we are approved by God. Listen to what it says. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. Acceptable to God. This means that there is, if I could articulate it this way, a smile from God when we conduct ourselves accordingly. It means that we are abiding by and obeying Christ when we do not exalt tertiary issues to primary issues, when we understand that Christ is the firm foundation of the church and I will not interject a secondary foundation that might compete with him. No, I will do no such thing. It will be our aim, saints, to please God in our living. But secondly, inside of this text is it says that we will be approved by men. John Gill says this, I think quite helpfully, of good men, of such that can discern things that differ and approve those that are excellent and even of bad men for such who live honestly and uprightly, who cultivate peace and friendship among men and carry themselves cheerfully and civilly to all men cannot but be approved of by the generality of them, though they may dislike them on other accounts. This means, saints, that what the apostle is getting at here is not just that you will have the smile of God upon you. It means that your incessant desires for your own preferences will not, permit, will not prevent you from being approved by men of the world even because you're a reasonable one, because you do not exalt preferences or self. Instead, you make it your aim to pursue something better than your own preferences. And even the world recognizes that. 
How much more so should the church in the midst of seeing a brother restrain himself when he could be free? Or how much more so when a brother abides by his conscience should we approve of those men when they do not exalt their liberties or their liberties of conscience to the place of dogmas? Lastly, here is the the crux of the matter. The alternative of pursuing your preferences is pursuing peace. Listen to what 19 says. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace. The word pursue here is the concept of running down. I'm going to sprint toward, I'm going to run something down to have it. Saints, if you are going to run down something with your brothers in the kingdom of God, I would plead with you, do not pursue your preferences, pursue peace. Make it your aim to live in harmony with one another. This concept of pursue is not a gentle running after. It's not a lackadaisical striving forward. It is a hard pursuit, a chasing after something. And if I could be honest, I feel as though it seems to me that our primary pursuit nine times out of 10 is a satisfaction of our own preferences, not peace with our brothers. It must be our aim as we are participants in a kingdom that is substantially a peaceful kingdom that we run hard after a last, that we are to, uh, what, what makes for peace for mutual upbringing. We pursue mutual upbringing, not personal liberty. Throughout the entirety of this section, the concept has been you are going after your preferences, after your liberties, after certain things that have no bearing in the kingdom of God and you're doing so to the detriment of your brother. Saints, this is not kingdom conduct. Kingdom conduct is marked by a pursuit of lasting peace with one another. Kingdom conduct is the intention of mutual upbringing, meaning your consideration is not, can I have my liberty right now? Your consideration is, how is it that in this moment I can build up both my weaker brother and my stronger brother, that I can honor the one for whom Christ bought, not destroy him, not grieve him, but build him up. This is the way that we live inside the kingdom of God. This is the way that we understand the relationships that we have in the midst of weaker and stronger and opinions and liberties of conscience is that our primary aim is to be about the things that mark the kingdom of God first and foremost. Secondary, tertiary things, we can lay to the wayside for but a moment and we can abide by the true tenets of the kingdom of God, which are righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. These must always be our primary pursuits. Let's pray together.